I'm John Bailey, and welcome to Popcorn Junkie Refilled, this sort of reboot of the podcast. Uh, I took a couple of weeks off, and I'm coming back with this whole new look on things. Um, there's not going to be any more discussions, no look at the box office, no sort of extra work. It's going to be strictly me reviewing the movies, and then at the end of the show, we'll talk about what's coming out next week. So without further ado, uh, this first episode of Refilled is going to talk about, have me talking about um, the uh, Alexandra Aha movie Crawl, produced by Sam Raimi, uh, the Kumail Nanjani Dave Bautista comedy Stuber, both the original and the remake of Disney's The Lion King, and Tarantino's new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, plus a quick Netflix and chat. Uh, we are going to I am going to keep that so that I can keep so that I can uh, talk about stuff outside of the theaters. But a quick Netflix and chat about My Little Pony Friendship is Magic season nine, part one, episodes one through 13. So without further ado, let's get this thing started. I had no real high hopes for this one. I mean, I I knew it was going to be uh, kind of a, you know, creature feature monster movie. But the whole, you know, when I propose, when I described this as alligators in a hurricane, everyone immediately thought of what has Sharknado wrought? You know, what new spore of madness has Sharknado, go, you know, wrought upon the horror going audience? And yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's a creature feature and a disaster movie. This there is it's hard not to compare this to Sharknado. But I think the problem is with Sharknado, you know exactly what you're getting. A really bad on purpose, lazy, you know, cheap horror movie. And with this movie, it has more of the budget, but is not as finely craft and not much better crafted. Like the characters here, you have um, some college girl who uh, like had high big like the big driving force for her was she was supposed to be like this big deal in swimming. Her dad coached her to be this big deal and she never really got to the tops of her um, of, of the of her uh, school or anything like that. And she, in fact, she's, she's struggling to stay on the team. And the whole point is that she lost her competitive edge. She's an apex predator. And that doesn't really go anywhere. Like the characters are basically there to try and survive. And the base level backstory that is given to them is is goes absolutely nowhere, especially considering the fact that both that she gets attacked by alligators. I mean, in actuality, she would not be swimming ever again. But apparently the main characters have protagonist powers and everyone else is able to just be decimated and completely eradicated by these CGI non-realistic alligators, which, by the way, yeah. These alligators don't behave like any actual alligator would ever behave. But that you could say the same for Jaws as well. But the difference there is that Jaws is a character movie, not um, look at the realistic behavioral patterns of sharks. So we care about Jaws because we care about, um, you know, Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfuss. And, um, you know, we care about the three of them stopping this this slasher villain essentially in the water and we we care about these humans in the movie not so much the monster and so when we don't care about the humans all we can focus on is the fact that the monsters don't make any damn sense these might as well just be dinosaurs escaped from jurassic park for the way they behave but um yeah for an rated movie it doesn't have very many bloody kills. There's some good use of blood at points, and there are some good gore effects. But it does the kills themselves are pretty weak. Like they don't really go the distance for the kills this time, and it feels like a waste of an R rating. It feels like it's only an R rating because the blood was actually re- red <laughs> instead of like green or purple or something. And 
it's just and of course not to mention the fact that like I mentioned there's not a consistent level of deadliness from the alligators because for the the more important to the plot quote unquote that you are the more immune to their kills you are so minor characters and you know supporting characters you know extras can get just completely you know sla- you know just torn apart and yet meanwhile our main characters the daughter and her dad managed to survive what these other characters would have been killed by so that it's very clearly not consistent and you know it's I think the uh, it, you know it showed that it focused more on Sam Raimi the fact that he's producing it not directing it and I think that was the big hook was that here's a new movie from Sam Raimi except he didn't have any real creative control over it and he wasn't the one making it so yeah this is a boring movie ultimately doesn't really have very good effects and the good effects that are good um, don't warrant. The the boring characters. So yeah, there's some good underwater POV uh, shots that they do of the of the alligators. But once again, like these characters aren't worth following. So it's got a decent production, but the kills are few and far between, and the characters aren't compelling enough to really make it worth watching. So. If you haven't already, I don't blame you for not watching Crawl in theaters. I wouldn't even bother with it on uh, home video. So, you know, not to say, like, oh, let's watch a bad movie. No, you'd be, there are better bad movies to watch. In fact, the Sharknado movies are probably more fun to watch in their badness than um, this movie is. So, you're better off just skipping this. I got this. Hello, operator? We need help. Someone's trying to murder us. Hello, operator? We need help. Someone's trying to murder us. <laughs> okay, okay, This one was one my nephew was actually looking forward to. He's a big fan of Dave Bautista. And um, I was very interested because we're seeing a little bit more of com- comedy action star Dave Bautista, which is good. He, you know, it's a good, it's a good fit for him because he's got the sort of charisma that he brings from wrestling and from his own uh, personality that he can that he has great comedic timing with as well. And having him in these sort of action comedies is a good fit for him, I think. And of course, Camille Nanjani is just hilarious. So the pairing of them is odd, but it's very interesting to watch unfold. Um, this is another sort of comedic take on Training Day, and I will say this. I would much rather watch Stuber again than watch either of the ride-along movies, which are also comedic takes on Training Day. I just think Stuber is a lot more fun, although it's not. that's not to say that it's great, per se. I'll say this. Uh, Bautista and Kumail, when it's about them on screen bantering, it's great. The plot is completely predictable and it's very bare minimum. And it kind of suffers from that issue of modern day comedies where the story is is an outline and it becomes more about the character, the actors improving their dialogue. And I don't know how much of that is true here, but it's, you know, the, the fact that they didn't bother with writing a compelling or interesting story kind of hurts this movie in the long run because those jokes aren't all hits enough to make it worth watching a late. Like, that's the thing is that good comedies can have basic stories. You know, The Hangover, it's about these guys. It's a mystery story about trying to find their friend. And it's all the chaos that is ensued of them trying to figure out what happened the night before. Or um, uh, like I'm trying to think of another or take Young Frankenstein, where it's a parody of the Frankenstein movies. So the plot is basic, and then it relies on the humor by uh, set, the set, you know, setting up of the you know dif- differences between the serious take and the, the silly take. And so the you know the comedic take on Training Day could easily work. I just didn't find Ice Cube and Kevin Hart as funny as I do find Batista and Kumail Nanjiani. I think their chemistry is better, mainly because I think Kevin Hart is a little overbearing. Well, not a little. Well, little overbearing. <laughs> Hype jokes. And then, um, but no, he's 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 a bit much, and he kind of gets on my nerves at points. I think he, him doing a different delivery in the upcoming uh, Jumanji mo- sequel. Is fine. It is, it is probably going to work better because it's not his same Chris Tucker 
for the modern era shtick that he kind of does, where it's the kind of manic over the top delivery, where he's completely fueled on cocaine. The fact that he's kind of downplaying it and almost doing like an impression of Danny Glover, I think that'll work better because he's not so, you know, over over everything, just overcompensating for his for his height. Um, but that's just me. That's just my opinion on. Kevin Hart. He's not bad. He's just he's just a lot for for you know for short periods of time. You know, little Kevin Hart goes a long way. Oh god, we need to get off Kevin Hart jokes. Okay, um, back to Stuber. So yeah, the jokes are hit or miss, but you know, it's slightly more hits than misses. But they're like long tangents of like you know you know, what it means to be a real man. And, and it's so it's like trying to tackle this theme of toxic masculinity through Dave Bautista's character. And all of that is completely unearned. And the fact that nothing really goes anywhere by the end, it's just like, eh, okay, I guess and it's, you know, it doesn't really go, you know, it doesn't do anything by the end because there's not a lot of investment in this. And that's also to be said of um, the production, because we get another action movie where it relies on shaky cam. And I thought it was because they didn't invest in good choreography. But um, when I talked about that on Letterboxd, somebody commented uh, to kind of tell me that uh, that's more of a workaround for less time to shoot good choreography. It's not that the choreography is bad. It's that they're on a tight schedule or they're on a cheap budget. In order to keep that those, that money low, they're using the shaky cam to make it look better, try to look like there's more going on than there actually is because they didn't have time to shoot. Take Because take, you think about it, how many takes would they have to be to do long-form shots of the actors fighting? So no matter how good the choreography is, that would probably take several days of shooting to get the right footage for those long takes. And and it's much cheaper to make it short and shake the camera to make it look like, oh, it's crazy action stuff going on. And it's like, OK, so yeah, you're just being cheap. So you're being cheap and you're and you're trying to make things quick. So if you took more time, maybe I would care more. So that's all. Uh, but at the same time, like, it's not like the studio wanted, would have wanted to take more time on an action comedy about an Uber driver where it's a takeoff of training day, you know, and especially that. And what sucks is because that's it's equal Weiss as one of the main villains in the movie. And you clearly see he's he's still amazing as a martial artist and as an as a stuntman. And yet the movie doesn't cater to his talents. Same problem you had with, uh, I think, 21, 12 Miles or whatever the stupid Mark Wahlberg movie was with him. And 22 Blocks, something like that, whatever it was, uh, where it was in vague Southeast Asian region because they didn't want to give an actual country. And Equal Weiss is just being wasted by Hollywood because he has the real talent to be a good action hero or villain or, you know, do great fight sequences. But Hollywood would much rather do things on the cheap than let him shine. I think putting him in the thing, something by the directors of John Wick, say, either in a John Wick sequel with one director or in any of David Leach's other, you know, direct directed movies. I think he would take the time to really let Eco shine. But Hollywood as a, as, as a whole is not really showcasing him the way he, he, is, he is deserved because of his work on The Raid, which I still need to see. I still need to see The Raid, but I've heard nothing but good things. And he clearly is very capable, even in the really bad stuff that Hollywood has put him in. So, yeah, um, at, the, at the same point, I had fun. Like, if there was another movie... Maybe not in the same universe, but just another pairing of Dave Bautista and Kumail Nanjiani. I wouldn't be against that. I think the two of them work great off of each other. And overall, I mean, Stuber's a bit of a hot mess. But the two leads are what make it good enough to make it worth watching at least once. You know, I would say give this a shot. But don't, like, I wouldn't say this would be your new favorite movie of all time or anything like that. I think... You should give it a chance. If you like it, great. Uh, if not, I mean, at least you tried.
I'm not going to lie. The whole reason for me bringing back uh, Popcorn Junkie as early as I did was simply because the week after I called my hiatus, the Lion King remake came out. And who boy, do I have opinions. I've got thoughts to share with you folks. And y'all are probably not going to like them, but here we go. I prefer the remake over the original. Now, let me explain myself, because I know that's blasphemy in the eyes of a lot of Disney fans. Here's the thing. I rewatched the original the day I went to see the remake. The original was really rushed. I felt like everything was going at a million miles a minute. And I felt like if they'd taken more time to let the story play out, it would have played out better and wouldn't have felt like they were just cramming it. Because that's the other thing is that I think the plot feels rushed because they pad out so much of the runtime with slapstick, which is the other problem I have, that, that there's a lot of tonal whiplash between the serious Shakespearean, you know, level drama of Simba being essentially framed uh, for his father's murder and blamed for his father's murder and, you know, being, you know, emotionally repressed until he feel until he has a coming to Jesus moment uh, with his dad and returns home to take his rightful place. You know, and um, people say Hamlet, but more up. But I think Kyle Colgren uh, made the better comparison that this is much more like Henry the fourth. Maybe Henry V, one of the Henrys, uh, one of the histories where that was basically the plot of that story where Hank Henry, um, I think it was the fifth. It was the one uh, where Kenneth Branagh directed and starred in it himself. Um, he Hank Henry, the son of King Henry, the previous King Henry, um, wants to kind of party and lay about and be and be silly and not want to be king for a while. And then he goes off and does that. And then he has to return home and take his rightful place as the king of England. And that's much more in line with the Lion King than Hamlet is. The only thing Hamlet, the only thing Hamlet related has is the um, treacherous uncle. But most there's a lot of Shakespearean plays that have that besides Hamlet. Hamlet's just the most famous with it. I will also say that the original Lion King has a lot of bad audio takes. I don't know what it is with the audio in the original, but everything is rushed and everything is like, I'm trying to think like I, I pointed it out to my mom when I compared them the, in the circle of life, there's a line that goes, but the sun's rolling high. Um, in the Sapphire sky or something about the Sapphire skies. Um, in the original, I have no idea that there was the, 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 sap, the word sapphire was even mentioned as the descriptor for the sky. As sun rolling high, it's that fire sky. It's just the way the singer, you know, enunciated uh, that I couldn't understand a lot. There's a lot of that, too. There's a lot of bad enunciation in the original Lion King, where the only way I would have known what the line was was with subtitles. And I think like, and I think that's just, I don't know what it is. I think it was, I think that uh, can be marked down as Disney at the time, thinking that was going to be the lesser of the two movies they were making. The other being uh, Pocahontas. So they were just kind of not putting, not putting as much thought into the Lion King and thinking it's it's going to be some silly forgotten, you know, nothing of a movie. And meanwhile, that's the one that everyone remembers more than Pocahontas, which is what they thought they were. They, they thought that was going to be their next Beauty and the Beast at the time. And I personally also didn't really care for the overdramatic uh, delivery, specifically from Jeremy Irons. I think it works great as a kid, as a kid villain. I get why a lot of, you know, People even now still love Scar as a villain because he's so overdramatic and just the worst mustache twirling villain. And I think watch rewatching it, I'm just like, oh, God, this is this is bad theater. This is bad theater. And um, and I think it, like people um you know, always remember the whole uh, bit where Mufasa dies, but 
thinking about it now and rewatching it, I'm thinking of um, the whole line like, Scar, brother, help me. Long live the king. And it's just like so over the top hammy. It's so, it has got more ham and cheese than a ham cordon bleu. I don't know, or some other reference to ham and cheese is um, get more ham and cheese than a deli. I don't know. Um, And yeah, the new one isn't as iconic, but I think it plays a little better. But I'll get into that. I'll get into my feelings on the new one. Suffice to say that I think the tonal whiplash and the really silly uh, slapstick trying to be paired up with this really serious story is what makes me not really care about the Lion King all that much. Uh, I will say that the animation is beautiful, gorgeous, some of the best Disney ever had, and the songs are still iconic. I mean, it's why people still, it's why it works so well on Broadway, because it plays, I think it plays better on Broadway. I also think Broadway, the Broadway story probably had more time to let the, let the themes and, uh, you know, development play out over the animated movie, which seemed to rush everything. So this isn't to say that the original Lion King is a bad movie, but trying to rewatch it now as an adult, I could not get into it. You compare that to the remake, which everybody who's a Disney fan, especially people within the sort of film critique sort of uh, world, all consider to be a travesty. You know, how dare they? This might, They might as well be remaking Psycho or remaking Citizen Kane. And it's like, I will take every remake as it comes. I am not against the idea of remaking movies. And especially since Jon Favreau has made the de facto best um, Disney remake, because they're not technically live action the way he does it. Um but, but I think that he has done the best job out of all of the directors tasked with remaking Disney movies. And I was re- you know, really cautiously optimistic about how it would turn out. And everyone was like, oh, my God, it's one of the worst movies of the year. Oh, God, how terrible. And I'm and I'm watching. And I went down there and I watched it. And like my nephew, I went with my nephew and he wasn't as into it. I got sucked in, especially once Timon and Pumbaa were added. I think I think what it comes down to for me is I am not as beholden to that original movie, so I don't feel like it's a betrayal. And even if they did remake Bambi, I wanted to do a live-action Bambi, quote-unquote, uh, with CGI deer back in, like, the 2000s. I was thinking of tr- I was trying to come up with fan casts of both Watership Down and Bambi, my two favorite books of all time. And... Watership Down did finally get a new version, although I do think the original is better. Um, But I would not be against a Bambi remake if Jon Favreau did it, because if he did it like he did the Lion King remake, I think he could actually make a better version of what I love about the book. I think he could include more stuff from the book that would allow that would differentiate itself from the from from the animated version. You know, that's just me thinking. That's why I'm not against the idea of remaking movies, because there's the opportunity to do something different or even something better. So here's the thing. I like the story the way it's told much better in the remake. I think it play. I I think the storyline plays smoother. I think it's not as rushed. I think the way they handle Scar and Mufasa's relationship makes more sense. It's not as over-the-top melodramatic, and it's much more like two brothers' relationships when they're at odds, especially if you're considering, like, royalty brothers' relationship. And, um, you know, and I do, and I think the recast voices are great. I think Chuatel Ejiofor is, a be- is an amazing scar. I actually prefer him to Jeremy Irons, blasphemous as the take that is. And I think Donald Glover is a way better Matthew Broderick, which seems to be the consensus Beyonce is uh, par for the course. I don't think she's better, but I don't think she's bad either. I feel like they didn't need her. I think they mainly cast her so they could include her on the soundtrack, but that's just me. Uh, Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner were great as Timon and Pumbaa. Um, 
the hyenas are actually way better in this version, I think. I think the weird trying to make them both villainous and comedy and, com- and like, slapstick, uh, you know, characters undercuts their villainy. You know, making them comedic undercuts their villainy, whereas, like, I was really... I'm, I'm not going to do the discussion, but I definitely, you know, discussion portions on this podcast anymore. But I got I got something I want to promote. I'll talk about it at the end of the episode during the plugs. Uh, but suffice to say there, I would love to do a long form discussion on Disney villains and who um, who is the best Disney villain in terms of accomplishing their goals and being villainous and being menacing and scary. Um I'd have to do a whole deep dive, though, but uh, suffice to say, I feel like undercutting the hyenas as a villainous force doesn't work, works against them by making sure like the hyenas never really get to do anything. And so in the remake, we actually get to see them actually. That's the other thing, too, is that all we know is that Scar and the hyenas took over. Then the pride land is just a wasteland. But we don't get to see how that happens. It just happens that way. And then they mention it. And here we get to get to see the hyenas hunting, over hunting and um, scaring off the remaining herds until they until they're all gone. And it's we get to find out why Scar is allowed for this to happen, because like in the original, it's just like, you know, he, he it, I don't know. I feel like Scar's motivations are much clearer in the remake than in the original, where he was just the villain, the foppish, the meanie pants, whatever. Um, I will. I think the prop. I think the main concerns I have with the remake are the fact that the CGI does make it less vibrant, and it's because by playing it more realistic. It's a lot less visually memorable. I will give it that. The in terms of a visual medium, the original has this movie beat tenfold because the animation quality in that one is so wonderful. That being said, I also want to commend the animators on the animal on the you know the animation team here. Whatever studio was behind that, I'm assuming the same one that did uh, Favreau's Jungle Book. They're making the best realistic CGI I've ever seen. The amount of time and effort and rendering they must have put into this production, it was well worth it. I think the animals look and act like actual animals, which kind of defeats the purpose when you're considering the original is much more anthropomorphic and allows for much more um human sort of emotions and sort of stuff and stuff like that was the whole thing with this is that you don't really get to see the emotion in the animals faces because they're much more animal like they're not giving human performances with their faces and i think that um by going for that more realistic route it showed the animators talent but it doesn't make for a more memorable movie i'll concede that i can definitely get that um not to mention the fact that this movie is always going to be beholden to that original movie. It's never going to be out of that movie's shadow. You know, it's like with a lot of the Disney direct-to-video sequels. Most of those never stepped out of the shadows of that original movie. Um, one of my first mo- videos I ever did back when I used to make videos was about uh, Bambi 2 and how it was completely beholden to the original Bambi to the point where it literally recreated scene, certain scenes from that original movie in the sequel for no reason. And... Yeah, I, I, I definitely concede that this remake is completely beholden to that original movie. That you can't differentiate between the two. They were always going to be connected. That also said, I think that Favreau did a much better job of populating the universe as well. Um, when you think of the oasis where Timon and Pumbaa raised Simba, that place is empty. It's devoid of life besides the grubs. And in this movie, they mentioned the fact, and you, we're dealing much, even though the characters aren't, named or have any sort or have any sort of introduction there's a collection of animals there with Timon and Pumbaa they're not the only ones there they have this whole oasis where animals uh, have kind of lived away from predators and then here comes this lion coming into maybe ruin the whole thing and 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 you know Simba has to deal there's a there's an interesting scene in the remake where 
you know, they Sebastian deal with the fact that people, the, the other animals don't take him seriously as a lion. And it's, a, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the remake, even though it doesn't go too in-depth into it. It's referenced, but not explained and not elaborated on. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I, uh, and, you know, I think making, uh, I forget her name. Um, oh, God, she's on... Um, the Walking, I think I forget her name, but uh, Okoye from uh, Black Panther plays Shenzi, the head of who is the sort of head of the hyenas, and she is not comedic at all. She's a straight character in the sense that she is played played non, um, you know, not you know played played seriously, and Shenzi in this has much, you know, it's sort of like almost the queen of sorts to Scar's king, and yet she's still not treated as, yet it, Scar is much more concerned with courting Sarabi, which it plays much more into this movie than it ever had anything to do with the original. And I think making Shenzi sort of like the head of the hyenas who has come into this partnership with Scar in the hopes of bettering her her group, her people, her animals, I guess, kind of, you know, ultimately doesn't get her what she wants and what they want. And I and I think the hyenas are just like the only two comedic hyenas are played by Eric Andre and Keegan Michael Key. They're completely new characters, and they're basically being played by Keegan Michael Key and Eric Andre, and they're hilarious. They like they don't get shine as much as Timon and Pumbaa, but they have great chemistry together. I I would love to see another movie with Keegan Michael Key and Eric Andre together because the two of them have amazing chemistry together. And yeah, I think the fact that you make the hyenas except for a couple a serious force to be reckoned with that that way you don't undercut their villainy. And I think that helped. I think that helped in the remake. So overall, there's no reason for this to exist. This is Bob Iger, you know, dig, digging the well deeper into the nostalgia, you know, bed and, you know, you know, pumping out nostalgia bait until the well runs dry. But, I would much rather watch this than the original. So take that what you will. And you know, maybe that's just that's that's just my personal take from it. I'm obviously going to be at my little table for one. Nobody's going to join me on this. Not at least not a lot of people are going to join me on this. But I stand by it. I prefer the remake over the original for The Lion King. So make of that what you will. This town. I can all change like that. Hey! You're Rick Dalton. Don't you forget it. Okay, the last movie I saw over the last couple of weeks was Tarantino's latest movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I have to say that Tarantino has completely become a waste of my time. And I think the thing is, he has been treading water ever since Kill Bill. After Kill Bill came out, he's always kind of been making essentially the same movie again and again. And he has become muddled in the fact that he's trying to make B movies play like A movies. And that B movies are campier, trashier, much more uh, exploitive. And he is trying to play them deadly serious. And I think he misses the point of what makes a good B-movie by tr- adding too many A-movie elements. And I think that's definitely... I think you see that in Inglorious Bastards. You see that more in um, Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight. And uh, here especially, you have... A movie that I was remember being sold on him tackling the Manson family. And when you actually see how little the Manson family is in this movie, you make you wonder why they're even brought up at all. They're completely superfluous to the main plot, which is about DiCaprio playing an aging actor who's been relegated to TV Westerns after being this big Hollywood, you know, Hollywood Western star. And now he's struggling in his older age. 
and he and his stuntman, who has become essentially his best friend and uh, uh, sidekick, uh, played by Brad Pitt, they're struggling to try and uh, make it, you know, make make do, especially since he, you know, DiCaprio's character is on his way out, and because of that, uh, his, Brad Pitt's character has nothing to do, especially when they reveal that he had a big. Uh, D, there was this there was this big incident involving a shoot on the Green Hornet. The other thing, this is a love letter to old television. You've got references to the Green Hornet with an actual with actual sequences showing an actor portraying Bruce Lee. Uh, you've got references to I think Bonanza and FBI. Uh, which was a show back in the day that kind of recreated actual FBI's most wanted cases and land of the freaking giants of all things. I don't know how many of y'all remember this. I remember it seeing, remember seeing reruns of it on sci-fi back before the name change to trademark it back when it was the actual S C I F I channel, they would rerun the Land of the Giants series in syndication all the damn time. And I was fascinated with that show. I assumed nobody knew it existed. And yet I hear it dropped in a Tarantino movie of all places. And I'm like, of course, Tarantino would be the only one to remember Land of the Giants was a thing. Because nobody else seems to remember the Land of the Giants was ever a thing. Of all the things to bring back, where's Land of the Giants, Hollywood? Come on. Uh, anyway, um, sorry, the weird tangent there. I just, that, that, that name drop of all things threw me off so much. Cause I'm like, was land of the giants that big that they would drop it in 1969 in Hollywood? Was it ever that big of a show? Cause I remember it being campy fodder for the sci-fi channel. Anyway, um. So yeah, if you if you remember Land of the Giants either in its initial run or on Sci-Fi, and you're not, and, and I'm not alone in having watched it, then you know, let me know, because <laughs> apparently, it's, I, as far as I know, Tarantino and I are the only ones that ever watched the show and remembered it, its existence. Uh, at any rate, back to this much less interesting movie. Uh, yeah, I would much rather watch episodes of Land of the Giants than this movie. So take it that what you will. Uh, I will say um, DiCaprio is phenomenal, as always. DiCaprio is just a, a, a constant professional. And Brad Pitt is good, but he's not really given a whole lot to do. Uh, and Margot Robbie is completely wasted in playing Sharon Tate. There is no reason for Sharon Tate to be in this movie because the Manson family plays no part in this movie. Margot Robbie is just here to have one scene where she show, where her feet are like center frame in the camera because Tarantino has a goddamn foot fetish and he has to let everyone know about it like like my nephew never really paid attention to the foot fetish in tarantino movies i mentioned it to him and he saw especially the scene where the hippie chick is hanging out with brad pitt in the i think it's like a cadillac or something or uh and her feet are all up on the dashboard and i mentioned tarantino has a foot fetish and my nephew finally put finally sees it in the movie and he's like oh my god i told him don't watch death wish because yeah it's all over there too (laughs) um and yeah i i what it what this ultimately amounts to by the end of the movie is tarantino making yet another b-movie plot with an hour of unnecessary padding to make it end a movie pretentiousness Tarantino has this weird obsession with trying to make B movies for with a with, with the cloud of an A movie, and he misses the point of why B movies are fun to begin with, and he just completely wastes our time by trying to make a pretentious B movie when he could just make a fun B movie. Um, I will say, thankfully, there are no since there are very few black people in this movie. There are no people dropping the N word, so. You know, you're not going to get that space on Quentin Tarantino bingo this time around. But yeah, after, and especially since there was this this really well choreographed and shot climactic scene, it all ends in this weird flat note that just kind of it's like it's like you had this cool fight scene and then it just all of a sudden somebody steps on a whoopee cushion and everyone just walks off screen. 
It's like that's that's the kind of momentum you have. It's like you get in the head of the head of the head of the head, and we're done. And it completely wasted my time. I just really could not get into this movie. And that's the thing. Having an old Hollywood movie where the where there's this subplot of the Manson family gathering their members and getting ready to murder, uh, commit the Tate LaBianca murders, that would have made for an interesting movie. Tarantino did not do that. He was able to deliver one good storyline, and that's the Leonardo DiCaprio fallen actor storyline. Um DiCaprio is the only reason to ever see this movie. After, uh, besides him, there's no reason. The Manson family is superfluous to the plot and doesn't really isn't really any fun to watch. And the actual uh, the actual runtime is like almost three hours. It's another like two and a half hour movie from him. And there's no, and just it's just a waste of your time. There's no reason to see this. There's no reason to see this in theaters. You need, you can just fast forward to the good bits and forget the other nonsense that wastes your time. So yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yet another Tarantino movie that wastes your time because he can't just make goofy B movies. He has to be a pretentious twat about everything. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. As I focus more on the review portion and not so much on the discussion for this podcast, expect a lot more Netflix and chat. I'm going to be watching a lot more stuff on streaming in order to have something to talk about these episodes from now on. And... The first time I'm bringing back Netflix and chat, I'm going to be talking about My Little Pony, of all things. Uh, In fact, in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be sure to drop it when uh, the episode drops. Uh, But recently, I just recorded another entry into um, Macintosh and Mod. I'm good friends with uh, the co-host of Macintosh and Mod, Diane, and um, (laughs) you may remember her from the early episodes of... uh, Living in the stacks, uh, she had to cut back because of Macintosh and Mod, and I'm over there uh, guesting on pony stuff, and uh, we covered uh, what about Discord uh, for season five? They're in season five. They're about to reach the end and head into season six soon. So to check them out, Macintosh and Mod, friends of the podcast, and um, bet- and before that, I was a- finally able to get the chance to check out the first half of season nine, the final season for My Little Pony on uh, I got on Google Play so that I wouldn't have to get it through Amazon because um, it was at the time uh, the Prime Day boycott. And I've since kind of avoided using Amazon uh, to buy things. I mean, I haven't really used it at all to buy most things. I usually just go to the store, but I specifically didn't want to buy it on Amazon's video service just because for that week, especially, I didn't want to patronize Amazon in that way. They've already got my money. Otherwise, I didn't want to give them more of my money. There's only so much I can do to boycott and lay stage capitalism. But for the first half, uh, they bring back the character, this character from the original airing of My Little Pony, the first generation called... um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Grogar, I believe. Uh, he's a giant goat sorcerer, and I love him. He's amazing, interesting. De- like, you don't usually see these kinds of characters in My Little Pony. So to see this new design and to have this powerful goat deity, essentially, demigod of sorts, be the villain is definitely fun. Uh, they had their the whole premise of the main of this season is brace, basically bringing about the Legion of Doom for My Little Pony and uh, Sombra is brought back, uh, Chrysalis and T Rex are brought back. Um, the only issue I have with this Legion of Doom they have is the villain from season eight, who was this precocious little child pony. Uh, who if, who had correspondences with T-Rex and Tartarus and was trying to rid the world of magic so that she be, would become the empress of friendship. 
and she is somehow part of this Legion of Doom. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. And you guess which thing is not like the others before I finish this song. It's the toddler. Why is the toddler part of the Legion of Doom? What is going on here? I think that's one of the weakest points about that. But um, uh, also this, you know, the, the friendship school makes no sense, but that's par for the course for this late later era of My Little Pony. Um, there's this whole subplot of Twilight being the next ruler of Equestria, which doesn't feel like it needed to be a thing like. You know, why is she now the de facto ruler of Equestria? I don't know. Um, also, Pony Quidditch is boring. There's an episode about the stupid pony basketball thing, and it, Pony Quidditch is boring. It was the only episode I actually did not finish. I watched every other episode. I was very interested in the other ones, especially the ones that dealt with this Legion of Doom. And though, as soon as they brought up the Pony Quidditch thing, I skipped. I was like, nope, moving on. We're not dealing with Pony Quidditch. It's the worst aspect of this show. Why did they bring it back? Anyway, uh, I also want to say that the the creature gang that they got at the Friendship School, uh, they're all adorable. They're all wonderful. Yona is best yak and is honestly one of the best characters in the later My Little Pony. Yona is wonderful. She is absolutely wonderful. Uh, we actually do, uh, for longtime fans of the show, we get, a, get finally find out who Scootaloo's parents are because that was the whole thing. Like, there's this whole fan thing going on of Scootaloo's parents being dead and, oh, my God, where is Scootaloo's an orphan? And, no, also she has, she has lesbian aunts. They don't say they're lesbians, but they're living together. They're, aunt, they're her aunts, plural. You know, they're, they're together in the same house. I doubt they're sisters. Let's just, you know, in a sense, I mean, they may as well just confirm gay ponies in this universe. So took them nine seasons, but we got gay ponies. Uh, also, her aunt, Scootaloo's aunts are wonderful. Scootaloo's aunts are, are wonderful, and I love them, especially since apparently Scootaloo's dad and his, and his sister are Australian. So somehow that accent skipped over Scootaloo, but that's. I loved hearing the Australian accent from those ponies. They they were adorable. And then um, Celestia and Luna still don't get along. Um, yeah, as far as the ending season, making Twilight the ruler of this of this nation feels like a weird place to go from the beginning. Like we ended up with Twilight just being the silly everyday girl learning lessons about friendship to being a mentor to others who are struggling with friendship, to now being the ruler of an entire nation. Sure, why not? <laughs> oh, God, there's no reason for that, but eh, whatever. Um, and yeah, I like the Legion of Doom. Um, I like the creature characters that they have for the friendship school. Um, Scootaloo's gay ants are wonderful, and I love them. And Pony Quidditch, Pony Quidditch sucks. Uh, as for the first half of uh, season nine, it's OK in the story department, but there's a lot of great work in the animation. The animation uh, has a list mix of its of its original style with the bits that they learned from doing the movie. So there's little bits that if you've seen the movie, you see in the animation style and it's a lot more fluid and fun and a lot, a lot more effort seems to have gone into it. And it's definitely picked up from when season one came out and uh yeah i'm very interested to see how this all comes to a head and how they end it and if they if season five if generation five will be any good uh generation four may be where i leave the my little pony fandom just because that's where i got in that's where i had my fun and if the generation five doesn't hook me i'm out i still had my fun uh and uh season nine Solid season so far. You know, it's not amazing. I think I have to go back through and rewatch the entire season arcs that went on. I think season six or seven may be my favorites. But um, overall, uh, My Little Pony has been a solid kid show. You know, highly recommend, highly recommendable. Doesn't matter if your your kids are girl or not. It's not just a show for girls. It's a solid show all around. It's a great show for kids. And especially if you like animation, there's a lot of great stuff in there for you. Um, 
yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I'm very interested to see what Hasbro does next with their franchise. So we'll see what comes next. Uh, that about does it for the reviews. That's all I had to say, really. And it feels good to be back, and it feels good to not be beholden to trying to have long-form discussions every week. I think I'm going to limit that to maybe every two weeks, maybe every month. I'll bring it up in the plugs when I have with my proposal. But um, before we break, I did want to have a uh, look ahead to the next week's release. So all we have is one. So the, we're going to have a preview of what's coming out next. Coming soon to the Popcorn Junkie Refilled Podcast. Now, in the previous incarnations of this show, I would actually watch the trailers for the upcoming thing, but that doesn't really make sense in an audio medium. Like, I can only direct you, like, especially since I never really plugged what trailer I was watching, so I couldn't tell you what one to watch along with me. You're just basically hearing my reaction to a visual medium in an audio medium. Gee, I wonder why my last podcast didn't really work out. So for the preview section, this coming attractions section, I'm going to be talking about my thoughts going into the next movie I'm going to be seeing, which for this next week, there's only one major release coming out. It is Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw, their first ever spinoff movie and right off the bat this is a comic book movie as much as they don't want to say you know as much as people wanted to cry comic book movies and their existence fast and the furious is not based on any existing comic book characters it is essentially a comic book movie at this point it was already off the rails goofy pre on previous entries especially with how they did the uh driving the car self-driving cars and utilize them in the last movie with the internet of things, uh, which is not too far from reality, but definitely played over the top and has no understanding of how the internet and, uh, technology actually works here. They just full on just admit Idris Elba takes so many steroids. He is black Superman. Also, there should be a, the next Superman should be played by a black man just to piss off the, the dirty, dirty fanboys and get the, and, and, and I just, I just, I just love seeing them squee, squirm because, um, they announced that, uh, for the next Thor movie directed by Taika Waititi, they're going to be covering the Mighty Thor arc where Jane Foster becomes Thor. They didn't even, they're like, they're not even going to shy away from that. That's going to be the next arc of, that's going to be the next major uh, storyline tackled in the next Thor movie, Love and Thunder. And they actually are bringing back Natalie Portman to portray Jane Foster, which, hey, Taika Waititi gets to gets to finally redeem Jane Foster in the MCU because the other guys completely screwed it up. So I'm happy for that. I'm happy Jane Foster gets to gets to finally have a real movie under her belt, and I'm glad that Natalie Portman gets a, gets a real shot to play an interesting character for a change, because that's what Jane Foster is supposed to be. Um, but anyway, back to um, Idris Elba play, being Black Superman. They've essentially just completely gone off the rails. We're not even trying to be in the realm of the possible. This is a comic book movie in all in all in all shape and form, except for the fact that it wasn't based on a comic book mo comic book. So um, that said. Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham have an amazing chemistry. I'm sure they'll be great together. Uh, the fact that they are going to rely on, uh, they brought it in. I, I, that's interesting to see in the recent uh, Dwayne Johnson movies is that he is much more um, interested. I think since Moana, he has become much more vocal about his Polynesian heritage, specifically that he is Samoan. And he wants to incorporate more of that culture into his movies. And now that he has the ability to do so, I am all for that because he should not be denied the right to showcase his cultural heritage by the fact that, you know, we gotta make movies for all audiences. Well, hey, guess what? Everyone went to see Moana and loved it. Everyone kind of, you know, people are seeing much more of Polynesian culture being portrayed on film and they're, and they're loving it. So, yeah, let's make a subplot where he has where uh, Dwayne Johnson's character is is um, in canon uh, Polynesian. 
I don't know if they've made him specifically Samoan or if it's some other part of Polynesia, but um, they're specifically going to his home, his, his home where he has Polynesian family, one of which is played by another, I believe, Polynesian. Is he Polynesian? I want to say he is. Let me see. Um, but basically, his Dwayne Johnson's cousin in the movie Hobbs's cousin is played by Roman Reigns, who I want to play the next um MCU villain, Craven the Hunter. Roman Reigns should absolutely play Craven the Hunter. Don't at me. Don't at me. Look at Roman Reigns. Look at Craven the Hunter. Tell me he shouldn't play Craven the Hunter. Anyway, um, let me take a look at his. That's football career. Person. I want to look up his prayer. Half Samoan, half Italian. So he's another, like Dwayne Johnson, he's half Samoan. Uh, Johnson being half Samoan, half black, having a black father. Was a black father or a black mother? One of the two. And then uh, Roman Reigns is half Samoan, half Italian. Um, uh, his father being, uh, I think, the Samoan one. Sika Anoa'i, uh, retired professional wrestler. Much like... Dwayne Johnson's dad, Roman Reigns' father, is also a famous Samoan wrestler. <laughs> I'll be darned. The, the connections are right there. I'm surprised it took them this long to be in the world, be in the movie together. At any rate, I'm very interested to see how Roman Reigns handles being on screen. I think he has the very, I think he is very capable of being an action hero, and I hope this gives him a shot to do so. I hope he doesn't suck at it. Because I, I still say Roman Reigns for Craven the Hunter. Do it, Kevin Feige. Do it, you coward. Anyway, uh, we've all as for behind the scenes stuff, which is much more important than who's on screen. Uh, David Leach, director of Atomic Blonde and Deadpool 2, co-creator of John Wick, is directing. So good choice there. The screenplay is by Chris Morgan, who has been sort of the de facto writer for the Fast and the Furious franchise, so there's that level of continuity. And Drew Pierce, who made one of my favorite movies the last uh, since covering the podcast, Hotel Artemis. Hotel Artemis being a really fun B-movie. So, with Drew Pierce working together with the uh, Fast and Furious writer, directed by David Leach, I see good things for this movie. I would be surprised if this movie sucked because it's got a good pedigree behind the camera and it's got a solid cast in front of it. So we'll see how it turns out. But I've got high hopes. I'm very I'm very optimistic about this, even though it's being an August release. I would not I would this this may be one of the better August releases that we've that we've had. So we'll see how it turns out at the end. Uh, I guess they don't want to put it directly in competition with the other May and June releases. They want to. You know, hold back, set in an August release. If it's a fast, if the Fast and Furious fan, um, fans come out, then the then the movie will do just fine. But we'll see uh, come this weekend. Uh, so yeah, that does it for this week. This new entry in the in the Popcorn Junkie podcast. This is the first episode of the reboot, and I'm happy. I'm happy to be talking about movies again because I love it. So. Um, uh, since we're almost ap- done with this episode, uh, it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and favoriting us on your web browser and keeping up to date on all the new episodes of all of our new shows. Uh, this coming In the coming weeks, you'll also be seeing a new episode of Living in the Sacks where I will be talking about the Franz Kafka short story, The Metamorphosis. So stay tuned for that. If you want to check out our previous entry, you can also check out um, uh, Dex's uh, discussion about Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda, which is uh, the basis for the movie Love, Simon, which I have a new I have new feelings about. You can listen to my feelings on the on that episode. Uh, Be sure to check out all of Donna's stuff over at Snarkcast. Once more with feeling. uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, The Family Business, all of that. And if you yourself are a podcaster and you would love, love to join our, love, our fledgling little network and help us grow, send all of your inquiries to gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com. We'll check out your stuff and we'll see if you're a good fit. Um, if you're a mobile listener, you can find Popcorn Junkie on all your mobile device, all your various podcasting providers. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, 
Uh, I, if we're somewhere there, if we're not on your podcast provider, let me know. I'll try to get on there. I want to be on as many places as I can. And, uh, if you're listening uh, and you like the new direction and you want to see, want, want people to check up, check us out, uh, leave a five-star rating and review, let people know that you like the show that they should check us out. Uh, you can also share us on your various social media. The social media home has stayed the same popcorn junkie, uh, facebook.com slash popcorn junkie, Twitter at corn junkie pod. Um, Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. We're on. I just did uh, the catch up epi- catch up uh, reviews on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. You can follow me on Letterboxd to follow my uh, text reviews at um, Corn Junkie Pod. And uh, I think that's about it for the social media. And then if you want to f- support the show yourself, you can do so through our Patreon campaign. Uh, there, uh, hopefully, this new. Uh, direction will kind of revitalize the Patreon. Uh, uh, there is a collection of much alongs, which are riff track style commentaries on movies, as well as make a better movie episodes, uh, 10 of each. Uh, and I want, I have a new proposal for a show that's Patreon exclusive initially, and then it will be released to the main feed. Corn talks. The, the uh, logo is the Ted talks logo, but with corn instead of Ted and it's essentially the discussion portion, but now specifically for those interested in the discussion portion. They're, we're doing the reviews as the main feed, and then if you want a discussion that's more long form that I have more time to prepare for, we'll do it that way. I think that by doing them separately, now I will have more time to focus on the to you know make sure and fine tune the discussion instead of making it off the cuff and stream of consciousness and instead make it much more nuanced and you know re- and researched and maybe even bringing guests i would love to bring in guests for that one and um i would make that exclusively to patrons for like a month and then release it to the main feed and either do it twice a month, maybe once a month, depending on how many people are interested. I'll start it once a month. If more patrons subscribe to the show and want more discussions, they can do so. Um, they can support, you know, suggest topics and whatnot. Uh, we'll we'll add more shows. Um, I, I would be shocked if it turned into a weekly show. Uh, I would say twice a month would be would be my best guess. And. Um, and yeah, and then but yeah, if you want to support the show on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash popcorn junkie. You have all of the archives of um Much Along and Make a Better Movie. And if you start supporting the show, you can also suggest stuff for pay I would love to do a Patreon corner. I would love to do a uh, audience feedback segment where you give your thoughts and opinions on uh the stuff I reviewed. And then during the pay and for patrons, I would love to hear your suggestions for Corn talks topics or munch along watch watching stuff. Maybe we can do much along actual watch parties where I bring in a chat and something or something like that. Make a better movie out of literally anything. I, you know what would if I was given the reins to whatever. If you want to hear my thoughts on a better Bambi, you know what I would do with my hands on the Bambi on the Bambi property. That stuff you can suggest as a patron. So if you want to support the show and help make content, you can do so at patreon.com slash popcorn junkie. And then if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, um, your thoughts on the new uh, direction, your thoughts on the reviews, you know, tell me how wrong I am about the Lion King. Uh, you can send all that to popcorn junkie podcast at gmail.com. And if you want me to read it out on the podcast, you can do you can let me know in either the subject line or the message. Otherwise, I'll simply paraphrase. I just would love to hear some audience feedback about the show and let people, you know, to ha- have the knowledge that people are in, are not only listening, but they have something to say as well. I would love to build a community around this show and make it something more than just me talking into a microphone. But 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 hey, you know, we'll see where this new direction goes. So uh, that does it for this week's episode of the brand new Popcorn Junkie Refilled Podcast. So until next time, I'm John Bailey and it feels good to be back. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork.
like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, A Good Ghoul's Guide to Horror. Oh! On the gun, we can't have it. Don't read the line. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying than fiction?